What's going on with dance and stuff? What's happening with dance and things? What's going on? What's happening? What's going on with dance and stuff? It feels as if you got another haircut. Really? Yeah, it's just ever-changing in quarantine. Well, you know, I have been suggesting to people that they go back and watch all seasons of Twin Peaks, and I'm so happy that Neil Beasley just started doing that. And I really am Audrey, because in the pilot, she starts with a very different haircut than she has in the next episode, and then shortly thereafter, her hair changes again, so... I do feel this, really is, is, this a, is an excellent haircut for you. Thank you. It doesn't have that blunt line that I'm not so fond of. I, you relentlessly love to tell me how you hate <laughs> when there's a blunt line or anything that's a little alt, a little <laughs> ALT. Are you yeah. cutting your own hair? I haven't cut it um, since this whole virus. <laughs> it's uh, continuing to... Mopsy, flopsy, and cottontail. Yeah, I, it's gonna, I'm gonna have to do something about this part, you know? This, on the sides, the kind of, um... The Pippi Longstocking flip, you know? uh Uh-huh, or a kind of, like, nun hat. (laughs) Yeah, it's not, I'm a Sally Field flying nun, but not, um, not bold enough to be fashion, just kind of ugly, so. It's, uh, well, there might be something you can do with it. Maybe if it gets longer, it'll start to tendril its way down your shoulders maybe i mean i have been doing my clips and headbands to get it out of the way i think the clips are the way to go i think you might bring in clips side clips for uh male id hair yeah well my mom does the side clips and then the this designer i love mona wakowska who used to have a label called ade tache does clips in her very fine gray hair and she's so chic she's the chicest well i do feel that's where you're headed you know yeah just fine gray hair (laughs) yeah well and and your mother and this other woman you know like you won't be your mother because of numerous reasons but there will be qualities that are very your mother for sure as there as there are now they're already there as as there are now tell me what it's like in beautiful sunny los angeles Well, it's not totally unlike what was going on in New York in terms of my daily practices. You know, I I wake up and fortunately for me, Cunningham here is three hours earlier than it is in New York, which forces me to kind of get a head start on the day. So when Cunningham is over by 11 and then I have all these hours and hours and hours to fill. But weirdly, I have... um, projects here i have pillowcase making for the pillows in my aunt's back house and i have um admin work and shipping bathing suits to people who are purchasing them for reed and harriet and uh stuff like that somehow the days go by the days go by they go by quite quickly i have to say I finally got the dvd player in here to work yesterday because jane gave me a different one to try and so I watched Rocket Man. And oh, how did you I, like it? I didn't care about it at all. <laughs> and I'm I, not I think surprised. That I'm not surprised people, by that. People love Elton John music, and I don't care about it. So I think that was the problem because yeah. the movie is a musical. It's literally a musical. Yeah, I also don't particularly care about Elton John music. I have to say. Yeah. Um, I don't know Therein why. Therein lies the problem. I do. Liking this movie. I do like the one that's like, 
Many in the hair. <laughs> Do it again. Many in the hair. You know, oh, I Penny, should... Penny and the Jets. It's Penny and the Jets. It's not Benny and the Jets. I have no idea. Who knows? PB, whatever. Um, you know, it's like that. Uh, there's that thing on Instagram now that's like, what gibberish is this person saying? And I've got to try that one on. I've only done what Hollywood actress am I? Yes. Which, and as we both know, you were Nicole Kidman. I was Nikki Kid, And I want to... As was I. Were you Nicole Kidman as well? That was my first try. I did I did it, and the first thing wow. they told me is In- Nicole Kidman. Incredible. On our first try, we both got Nicole Kidman. And it does make me want to, once again, remind everyone of uh, Grace of Monaco that Parker is in, lest we forget, is... A wonderful movie. I highly suggest everyone watch it. There's two different versions that came out. I don't know why. And one of them, I'm not sure if it's in both. I mean, it's an it's an awful movie. But it's so great. <laughs> I mean, something that's great with cable is Lifetime Network and being able to watch movies on that. Wow, those are the movies mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I'm meant to be in, but like as the female characters i do feel that if they had gotten nicole kidman prescription eye drops during the filming of that movie mm. it could have been better because her been eyes better. are so so dry during it which as someone who has contacts i understand but there's this incredible moment in the movie where she's being trained for how to understand being a princess and flashcards are held up by someone it's that British actor, I can't remember his name. And um, one of them, she hides behind a chair and peeks around behind it. And what was what was that emotion? Uh, it was probably like mystery. You know, who knows? Oh my god. It was goodness. incredible. It was really incredible. Are you finding it um difficult to do the podcast during these times, or are you finding it the same or better? I'm finding it difficult. <laughs> Likewise, to, to do the podcast during these times, I am. I'm finding it difficult to. Well, there's a couple things going on. One is now it really is uh, this inside lockdown we have, and so we would need to watch, dance, or uh, performance online. <laughs> and just saying that, I just can't. I can't imagine it. I think I, I just had an I idea. I think that for these times, it just now has to become about movies that have dance or not even at all, quite frankly, or movies that have a choreographic element, which is all movies, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. But I think we could take suggestions from listeners as to what dance movie they'd like us to watch and then discuss on the podcast. or Or theater or performance. I mean, I feel there's... A lot of theaters are now opening up their archives. Um, right. And no, but I mean like watching White Christmas or something because it has oh, tap see. dancing. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, like an actual, like, made to be a movie that has dance in it. Because I don't think you and I can watch a performance dance on a stage that's been filmed. Yeah. And try to enjoy it and talk about it. It's not going to work. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> I think you're right. I think that's, I think that that is pretty true. I think we've, we did that. We've done that in our life. 
And um, I mean, I've gone to, I'm so excited about our guest today because when I was 18, 19, 20, 21, like even through my early 20s, I would go to New York Public Library, the Performing Arts, mm -hmm. uh, mainly in the Jerome Robbins Dance Division and watch dances. Yeah, I've spent millions of hours in there watching a dance and um, I just don't feel like it right now. It's weird. And I also, I'm going to, I'm embarrassed to say this, but I do now feel like a, an obligation to improve my Instagram right now because I supposedly have the time to do so. And so every day becomes like the struggle of like what to post. And it makes me feel, makes me feel for people who make Instagram their job because it really does feel like a job when you feel forced to do it well and why are you wanting to improve your instagram what is your goal i guess like i'm having the urge to feel seen or feel mm. uh remain present in the universe mm. um maybe in preparation for when we return to the universe and so mm. Um, I don't know. I think like you have a job that's not right. going to go away. Right. And I have a job that has instantly vanished. So mm. I feel that in order to stay considered by other people, I need to stay visually present on Instagram. And in order to be seen on Instagram, you need to post every day. That is true. And I think there is something to your job uh specifically with Reed and Harriet where uh on your personal account seeing a very long steady bizarrely multifaceted dance career uh tracks well to then this design to your design to the Reed and Harriet design account because it is a real proof of how much work you've done for so many different people as a dancer and therefore you're uh, something that you have to offer specifically to dance costume design that is very rare. Oh, well, thank you. Because, well, it is because, I mean, there's people who have been in ballet companies who are going to design costumes. There's people who have potentially been in, I would say, very modern dance companies who are going to design, but you have gone from ballet to modern to far more eclectic performance art-based works that have been shown in museums and galleries. And uh, that acumen is not only wide-reaching, but specific. Thank you. Oh, so, Thank I'm glad that Instagram illuminated that. <laughs> well, that is not what Instagram certainly didn't illuminate that for me. I've known you for years and years and years and years and years. Yeah, and we've Ooh, we I like have it when your microphone's like that, as if it's one of those um what is that called when it's in your nose? Oxygen tank nose tubes. Oh, when I pull my microphone in front of my mouth so that it's yeah. just right there. It's, so that it's as can... if you're taking a break from your oxygen. I'm just taking it down to my mouth hole to get some oxygen there. <laughs> my mouth hole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think the the I think that the accomplishing anything right now can feel incredibly difficult. I mean, today, as we were doing the podcast, I thought, oh, well, why aren't we just, we should just interview Linda and 
skip this opening discussion with each other because you and I have our have our dates on house party with our friend and I don't feel friends a friend <laughs> we have our dates on house party with our friend you and me um our friend um and and it is this thing where there the live performance has halted and the idea of people coming into closed spaces to watch performance anytime soon feels remote at best. And I think there are people who are certainly taking initiatives to draw a viewership to their performance works online. Mm -hmm. And I think there's people who really are craving that and who are wanting to see it. Um, but for you and I who have watched a lot of work online, it's, uh, I don't know when people when people have asked me for videos or I'm about to do this interview uh, with someone who wanted to look at all my work and do an interview with me and I I said well okay I guess you can look at all of that work and it was part of what pushed me to get it together to put it all on my website mm. but I've just always thought who wants to watch it that way I know it's hard but especially when it hasn't been made that way yeah. and for me who's been incredibly low budge um i have very few instances of what i would say is documentation of the work that is a quality enough to have one continue to stay engaged with it but i think that the the, the quality of the documentation of your works feels very it runs parallel to the sort of <laughs> the production itself so i think the way that meat is filmed is absolutely correct Do you know <laughs> because what I mean? we did it for we made that show for three thousand dollars yeah yeah in a living room That's with correct. garbage bags yeah. so like it would be bizarre if it had if there was like a high def multi-cam mm -hmm documentation of it it's true it's like way. that it's grainy correct. early footage of martha graham doing frontier yeah just a it real has to be this way it has to be this way yeah i'm curious from our listeners how they feel about engaging with viewing performances now uh vis-a-vis -vis their laptop and i especially when indeed there's I mean, live art does something very different than film yeah. work. I mean, I have, well, whatever. Work that is. I've been enjoying my time on FaceTime more than ever before. It really, it really is now starting to feel like, oh, this is spending time with friends. Mm. And so, so maybe at some point I'll get back into dance on camera and like start to be able to feel something about it. But for right now, I just am having a good time going on dates with like Isabella Boylston while she's in the bathtub, you know, and that was wonderful. I'll send you some great images from that. She she cleaned off her mascara whilst in the bath and shaved her legs. So she has some black swan photos where there's black mascara all over her face. Oh, that's great. But I, I urge all of you to watch um, Isabella Boylston on the Insider YouTube channel showing her exercise routine because her her depression in doing exercise in her kitchen is so deeply felt, even though she's trying to be positive for this kind of influencer <laughs> vlog. 
It's really <laughs> wonderful. It's wonderful. I laughed and laughed and laughed. I loved it. Oh, well, and perhaps that's also part of what it is that we would want to see online anyway, is something that actually feels like it reflects the time more than uh, some sort of spectacle (laughs) performance where it's like, wow, look at that uh, grand rond de jambe into, you know, it's sort of like, (laughs) I think there's something way more about the exhaustion. Yeah. Totally. And it is why I, I really liked that Martha Graham video of their acts of light Mm, from the living room montage. And I really liked the Trisha Brown roof dance from inside their homes as like a, as a online zoom game, which I thought was terrific. So more of that, like make, um, excellent inside the living room dance content so I can relate to it. Yeah. That's, I, I think that is the thing, isn't it? It's like, consider the context, consider where we're actually at and show that. So this is a time for living room dances. You know, yeah. as I love like Isabella Boylston teaching key tree variation in her kitchen on point full out. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. That is, so that is the kind of content to, to watch. And so I think that is, that actually has, uh, uh, what is it? Dialogue, mm-hmm. a, a conversation mm-hmm. and can provide some sense of catharsis, meaning connection into the feelings that we're having. Or why don't you just go ahead and watch that regional production of cats and watch Mr. Mistopheles mark his way through a five minute variation. It's tremendous. That was incredible. <laughs> Or as I've already said, watch Madonna and the and the New Jersey tour. Hello, New Jersey. Do you believe in love? It's really, it's really incredible. It's really the way she starts. You know, it's as people have already heard. It's the last leg of her North American tour, and the way she starts that tour feels absolutely correct. Hello, New Jersey. Do you believe in love? Well, I've got something to say about it. And it goes something like this. Oh, my God. Yesterday, Bella said something that really freaked me out. She was like, I, she was like I'm basically preparing to, like, get back, question mark, Met season 2022. You know what I mean? She was like, I don't even know, like, if I should be preparing to come back 2021 med season. Like, what's realistic? And I was like, because, you know, when we first started quarantine, I was like, in two weeks, I'll be back in my studio, just like taking care of business. Oh, wow. And and now I'm like, what? Like, now I'm, I'm actually have to put a deposit on, on online grad school. Do you know what I mean? Yes. So this is all becoming uh, more prolonged than I had anticipated. I will say I am glad that you got into grad school and that you're proceeding with that because in times of a recession, grad school applications go up. Uh, Because you can, now that you are in grad school, apply for subsequent funding. Right. Right specifically because of being a grad student. So, and in terms of the job market and what all of that means, and are we indeed heading to some sort of grapes of wrath? Uh, <laughs> you know, 
know, the John moment. Steinbeck dust field. <laughs> That's where we're you going. Where, where I suckle some um, old man on my breast at the end of the book because my baby died. Remember that? I do, actually. I do. Yeah, Just yeah. a random baby. Yeah. Well, the, her baby dies, so there's an old man who's dying, so he suckles oh, out right. her breast because he's starving. Yeah. God, it's a long time. When did I um, read that? I feel like I read that in an inappropriate time, like middle school. I read it in the seventh That's grade. Correct. Yeah, well, I think we're, yeah, we're asked to read it in middle school. Interesting. Um, Mm-hmm. I bet John Steinbeck never thought that he'd be a middle school, uh, that his demographic was tweens. <laughs> <laughs> that we would be reading Flowers in the Attic and Grapes of Wrath of the same of year. Of Mice and Men, a book about uh, rape and murder and uh, <laughs> and it's for kids. Yep. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have to, in Flowers in the Attic, that also has rape and murder in it. Um, V.C. Andrews. Wow. She really nailed it. Way to go, V.C. Someone needs to... V.C. Andrews? Is that who wrote Flowers in the Attic? V.C. Andrews wrote Flowers in the Attic, um, (laughs) which is a very now time for ballet, quite frankly, because the main, the protagonist continues her ballet training in the attic. Well, one must hope that Kathy Marsden does an online production of Flowers in the Attic starring dancers in their living rooms. Oh, God. <laughs> no, thank you. No, thank you. I, can, I, can I please do that, please, so it can be good? Oh, yeah, um, I re- you actually should, Jack. All right. Fair, well, you've heard it here first, ladies and another. I will start. Jeremy can edit it. I will start to get together a Flowers in the Attic Um I volunteer as tribute to be in the production. That's amazing. It can be you, Bella. um, Mm -hmm. In her bathtub. (laughs) Bella Bella in her bathtub. Uh, You should really talk to Bella about using her tub because she has a drowning tub at home. I, as well, where I am, have a drowning tub. And I love to think about... um, uh, we've already talked about rewatching this movie, which is What Lies Beneath. So incredible. you got to pull that drain with your toe. Bella was sitting Indian style in her tub and her shoulders mm-hmm. came up to the lip. Wow. Yeah. Polly Pocket. No, <laughs> I mean, the tub <laughs> is huge. That's amazing. Yeah. That is really great. Um you're almost out of your choir. You have like uh, like a week and a couple days to go. Mm-hmm. And then you and Aunt Jane can eat in the big house. Yeah, I can walk into her house. I haven't been in it. That's, that's so nice. I guess. And then you'll see Ryan Walker Page and you guys can go kick sand along Venice Beach. <laughs> that sounds tremendous. I wish I was in LA. It sounds like a perfect place to be in this, in this completely uh, amorphous time. It's better than New York. I'll say that, having had experience. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I. I definitely it's, think I will, probably like the best place to be is if you're like a person who lives in the mountains in Montana. You know what I mean? Because then nothing's changed. Right. I mean, I do. I will say, being upstate and specifically being where I am upstate feels like it is when I'm here. It's just that getting food and dealing with that is a little different. But outside of that, I'm not seeing anybody except, you know, Rory. I gave some, gave some treats. And Jeremy, of course. Yes. 
How's Jeremy doing? He seems Jer- um, blue down. Jeremy is, well, I would say about as down as anybody. And remaining industrious as ever. Jeremy loves to work um, and is continuing to do so. And I'm not going to say what projects Jeremy's working on because I think as they get launched, mm-hmm. I don't want to say. Uh, but he's working for a choreographer who we know, and that will be launched soon. And, um, and then there's some other projects coming down the pike. And uh, and then this, and then our flowers in the attic. I will say now to get political, um, this is <laughs> um, a terrorist event from our uh, government or lack of government, I would say. And uh, it is uh, truly beyond uh disgusting i i was there's the were these um during act up there were these posters made of ronald reagan that said he kills me (laughs) and um i mean wow the way to the way this is that they knew i know i've said it talked about this already in the podcast before the way these senators knew the way trump knew the way these people knew the way that trump just uh, do you know? Was like I'm going to withhold money from the World Health Organization because right? Uh, they lied. It's like no, you queen, lied. You lied. It's all. It's and just are, like the the there's the lies and and the crimes are now too numerous. It's become ridiculous. And then the like stopping stopping mail on those checks so that he can be sure his name is on them. And it, yeah. the whole thing is so he's politicized this like hideous thing that's happening to such an extent that it's like I cannot wait for him to be dead. I can't I completely agree. People keep saying like can you imagine if Mike Pence was president? I'm like actually it would be fine if he was president because he would take people's advice. He wouldn't act like a total child and a total sociopath. He's well. He would act like a sociopath for sure on some things, such as like um, LGBTQ issues and, and women's rights. Uh, and this is so certainly, much he's racist. But this is um, this is kind of all of those things and more. This yes. is someone who's not only hostily xenophobic and extremely violent, um, but. Uh, also in uh, an idiocy of such gigantic uh, proportions that one can only anticipate uh, extreme death of, right. a, of a lot of people as long as um, this uh, he's, he's, he really is just death. He's sort of death personified as um, an idiot uh, clown. Death becomes him. He really does look like how they looked at the end of that movie, just spray painted and glued together. Yeah, it's really, it's really gross. And that Mitch McConnell is still alive. It's incredible. Oh, my, he looks exactly like how that senator in the original X Men movie looked when he got the mutant gene and turned into a jellyfish man, so he could go through the bars of his jail cell, mm-hmm. and then eventually he just mm-hmm. turned into a puddle of water. I'm like, Mitch McConnell, when are you going to turn into a puddle of water? It's, it's time. It's really so. And I guess my reason for bringing that up is I think that psychic weight can make doing things like this podcast or any sort of extracurricular difficile. So I guess if I, the only way that I'm ever ever able to get behind it is the idea that play is a political act, especially in times of extreme hatred, disdain, 
stupidity and, and, and clearly fascism, this idea with Trump being like, you know, but I have total power. It's like, oh, God. But I loved well, them. My favorite quote, they were reading, they were just reading some of him, uh, like, just verbatim on MSNBC. And there was like, uh, President Trump said that the country will come back together like a puzzle, like beautiful little pieces. <laughs> that, picturing that fucking turd saying it'll come back together like yeah. beautiful little pieces. Also, good luck trying to get a puzzle right now. They're all sold out. Just wanted to sidebar. Hi. Hi. Um, so, yes, it, you know, is the... Is Joe Biden an absolutely problematic nominee for and reasons that I could go on and on about? Yes. Is it our only option at this point for voting? Yes. Because this is only going to, there's, it can get worse. Let me tell you what, when that, when, when the people had the, when the Queens had the, it gets better campaign, I was like, well, it also can get worse. So, um, but anyway, Jack, in an yeah. effort to to lighten the mood, lighten the mood, clean, clear the slate, clear the slate. As today, which is yesterday for you listening, is Merce Cunningham's hundred and first birthday, and a really Merce has really been a bright light for me during quarantine. I have to say, having access to his class for free every day, and being able to move my body in a really structured and familiar and challenging way has really saved my body and my brain. And I'm so grateful in today doing class and doing the exercises on six, I felt very emotional and thought, you know, I, I feel so understood in a way because of MERS and like, I, I didn't dance in the company. I've danced very little of the repertoire, but I love him. I love what he did for dance. And I, I relate so deeply. You and Merce are connected deeply and I can see it in a sort of psychic aura. I feel he stands by you. He Mm -hmm. runs his hand gently through your moppy hair and uh, is proud not only of you as a dancer, but what you did for the centennial with the costumes. Thank you. That came through very clearly for me right now. Because as we also know I have, I was a psychic to begin and it's only gotten stronger. <laughs> so um, it's only gotten stronger in these times between the veils. Um, and I love that. I, and I, I love that. Uh, Merce is there for you. I want to say in my gratitude list of someone who's dead, who I feel very close to, it is um, the writer Jane Bowles. And uh, uh, I highly suggest if people are looking for something to read, you can get her collected works, which uh, my sister's hand in mine. And you can read her play. She has one play that she wrote, but there's there's a really good story for you and me read in there called Two Serious Ladies. Um, and, uh, I'm going back and rereading some of her and, um, and also reading a biography on her. She was someone who I, I really wish I would have been able to meet and to, um, definitely I feel has informed my writing. And I really appreciate that she was able to view the world in which she viewed it and to be able to say something about it. Aunt Jane Bowles. Um, that's right. We're going to take a quick break 
And when we come back, we'll be with the iconic Linda Murray. The majestic, the beautiful, the the, the perfect, I, the genius. I was talking to Linda yesterday on the phone and and how we were doing this and uh, uh, she had seen the In the Closet video and I'm ecstatic because she has, she got me something. She's got me a garment for when we're able to see each oh other my, again. I'm sure I'm sure she found it in her closet, which must be expensive it's not, she got I've it, never seen her repeat an outfit. She got it when she was in Ireland. And um, I told her that I cannot, that she is, you know, a top in, in our top list of an in the closet when we're finally all able to get back together again. I can't wait for that in the closet. Um, she is, I, I'm sure when we are speaking with her that you and I will be relentlessly showering her with um, compliments. Um, but I will say that she is someone who has greatly inspired me uh, in the last year, has been a huge supporter and, um, and honestly a role model. Yeah. Truly. All right. If so when, only we could all live with as much grace and generosity and intelligence as Linda Murray. Truly, truly. So when we come back, um, someone who I've been hoping would be on the pod for a while will be. Stay tuned. Hello. Wow, this is hey. so exciting. <laughs> Linda. Linda, even oh, the light no. coming through in your apartment She's right now is illuminated full. like an angel. It's, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, because Linda is truly a goddess. It's true. It's true. It's, it's true. true. It's true. Linda, earlier when we were when Reed and I were just catching up, we were we were talking about how this would begin at least begin with us showering you with a lot a lot of praise. No. Oh. <laughs> No, and, don't do um, that. Don't do that. <laughs> okay. Well, we've already we've already done it so much on this podcast. We we should let Linda it's talk true. at this point. But um, what was I going to say? We are some of the only people alive who've gone to see Linda in a t-shirt. So I feel well hashtag blessed. The the the, um, the gala we had for the dance division, uh, we had a tech for that, and we had lots of wonderful members from the dance community who showed up to the tech, and they didn't realize I was basically their stage manager, tech director for the night. So I was in <laughs> I was in yoga pants and a t shirt, and Jeffrey Kazin was just like, I can't unsee this. This is not this is not right. You, Shocking. You, you should not be wearing this. Take it away. Um, but, but and still, no one's ever seen you with your hair down. That it, well, I keep my actually it's up today because it's greasy, but I keep it up and work because I live in fear of one of my hairs falling onto an old object and then the oil from my hair ruining it hundreds of years from now. Because <laughs> because I okay, so here's the thing, people: if you touch a photograph fifty years later, your fingerprint shows up, and so like I I live wow. in this like horror of like the things my body is going to do to all of these precious dance artifacts. So like I try to keep myself. Back so that nothing of me is going to impact the material in any way. As soon as <laughs> as soon as we're out of quar, I want to go to the rare book collection and touch everything. It's like that French and Saunders <laughs> skit. Over. Don't let him in here. <laughs> Linda, have you seen the French and Saunders skit where they where they talk about going up? You've seen them all. They talk about going up and then they show a picture of Margot Fontaine after she took her bow. Yes. <laughs> oh my god. I live for French and Saunders. I've seen every French and Saunders sketch ever. Like they I grew up on them. Like I the one oh, with yeah. uh Darcy Bustle where they're doing that. I just watched that one again last night and I thought of you, Linda, because it came up for some reason. The the one because I, I remember you 
I remember being upstairs with you like a few months ago and you talking about um, how Saunter, how French has the Band-Aid on her yeah. face because she has an injury. And I remember you telling me about that. And then it came on at exactly that moment when, and this was just after I had called you to ask if you would be on. Oh, it's kismet. And then that came up. It really was. It was truly faded. So ladies and other, we're here with Linda Murray, who you have definitely heard Reed and I speak of, and we're honored that you are joining us today. And so to start, give us a little background about where did you grow up? So I grew up in Dublin in Ireland. Um, so I came to New York uh, for the job of being the curator of the dance division. So I've only been in New York for four years and a couple of months oh. now. Um, but yeah, but yes, yeah, so my whole family is still at home in Dublin and all self-isolating or <laughs> the term that's being used at home is cocooning, <laughs> uh, which, make, which makes me think that like my parents are in some sort of chrysalis <laughs> and like, something really scary mm. is going to emerge like. When we're finally let back outside, like everybody will have like the movie. It's like (laughs) or kind of terrifying. Forever, it is. Don't they come back younger? Something like like that. Go into a cocoon, and Jessica Tandy comes out, and she's played by Julia Roberts. Um, (laughs) uh, So wait, but so you grew up in Dublin, Mm -hmm. and and then when did you start? And then you trained as a dancer. Yeah, well, I come from a family of dancers. Um, My grandparents met as dancers. um, Yeah, my granddad was an All-Ireland champion dancer and um, loved to lord it over my grandmother that she only ever came in second. So they were both really good. Um, But their... my grandfather also played the fiddle and he used to uh, play the fiddle on Saturday nights at the mansion house in Dublin, which is the, the mayor's house. And they would have these big Kayleys, which are Irish social dances. And he saw my grandmother from the stage when he was 19. So yeah, so dance brought them together. So I grew up in a family where um, I, I had no idea how good my granddad was until I was much older. Like he would just dance with me in his kitchen and he would see how complicated a step I could follow. And I just, you know, that's just part of how we communicated. And he had thousands of medals that, you know, would just sit in jars and cups around his kitchen. And I would pour them out and play with them as a little kid. And <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, so that that was that was one side of dance in my family. And actually, my grandfather that was my dad's side of the family. And then on my mother's side of the family, my grandfather was actually the kilt maker for Irish dancers. He was a tailor. So that that was you know there was dance on that side of the family too in terms of costume design and things like that. But I I chose ballet. And my grandparents, being the incredible people that they were, uh, supported that and never once told me I was breaking their heart by not going down the road of competitive Irish dance. Um, so, <laughs> um, so I did I did ballet, uh, which, you know, in Ireland, there isn't um, it, it's had a very sort of spotty history in terms of having a national ballet company. And there is mm. no there is no national ballet school. So um, I did the Royal Academy of Dance program, which had a had a school in Dublin. So that was uh, where I did my training. So I did the RAD training um, and then went to the Russian Ballet School in Dublin after that. And then actually spent a little bit of time in Russia as well, where you quickly learn how bad a dancer you really are. <laughs> and what was... How old were you when you went... 
Go ahead, Reed. I was just going to say, what was your, how old were you when you, when you switched from RAD to Vaganova and, and, right. and what was that, that was experience like? I was, uh, 17. Um, yeah, so it was, it was very different, very, very different, but completely opened up my understanding of the balletic vocabulary in a different way. Um, yeah, it was a wonderful experience. Um, mm. Very well, wonderful once you get past the culture shock of like moving <laughs> to Russia when you're <laughs> when you're in your teens, <laughs> and you know it, it. You get to call home once a month, and you have to queue up for an hour to do it, and you get like a ten minute slot, and it, like just all of these bizarre things. Um, and you learn to just. Wait, where were you in Russia? I was in Saint Petersburg. Yeah. Um, oh, were you like at the Mariinsky Ballet School? I, I mean, I, I was with a teacher who was affiliated with it. Yeah, yeah, so. Wow. Yeah, um, so that was a wonderful how, experience. How long were you in Russia? Uh, the first time I was there for a little over a year, and then I made a couple of other trips back, um, as, particularly as I, was tra- um, as I was moving more into researching dance, and uh, my area was the Ballet Russe, so I started to spend more time in Russian archives, so I... You know, I've been been in a few different places in Russia, um, which became a, a country I really ended up loving, even though the initial transition was um, a little bit difficult to adjust to. But it, it was a really wonderful experience. Yeah. And Russian Russian is one of the many languages you speak. Is that true? I do speak Russian, but I mean, it, I, I think there's a thing where Americans are always impressed when somebody speaks multiple languages. But when you grow up in Europe, that's just kind of right, part right. of how you're brought up. It's not it's not right. special that I speak a few languages. It's right. not well, special we're, at we're all. We're also convinced that you're a spy. <laughs> so... I think it's important and that you... Reed and I, Reed and I also have believed that you're that this is sort of a Mata Hari. Uh, <laughs> I would know, love that, to that, be that glamorous. That actually, that, that actually, what's, that's actually what's happening is that you work for like MI6, and uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's something. But you're you're cross affiliated with the CIA, and it's uh, that's absolutely one of the. But at first, I can't remember the first time we it came up. But I remember us being like, "I think Linda's a spy," <laughs> and then and then they're like, "You know what? That's true." So that's sorry to blow your cover here. No, I would here love to on, be a spy. Um, on um, uh, research journalists Jack and Reed, as we got called on one of our recent episodes, research journalists have discovered that Linda research Murray journalists. is actually a spy for MI6, CIA, KGB, all of it. Linda, did you dance in? Battle? companies after your schooling? Yeah, I, I kind of was in pickup companies for a bit. Um, and then, uh, yeah, as I said, I, I transitioned more into the academic side of things. And then I, I actually ran an arts organization in um, Washington, D.C. for six or seven years. And so I directed and produced um, and, and brought in a lot of work. Um, so it was a contemporary Irish arts organization. And my job was to bring young Irish artists in to sort of create a different kind of dialogue about what Ireland was like as a country. So that was a really wonderful experience because it enabled me to frame a different type of narrative. Um, I think Americans, particularly Irish Americans, which is always the way when you start talking about, you know, specific communities Mm. and demographics have a very set idea of what Ireland is. Um, 
And Ireland has actually developed into being an incredibly open and welcoming um, country. You know, we were one of the first countries to legalize gay marriage. In fact, I think we were the first country to actually officially legalize gay marriage. Um, our current uh, Taoiseach is um, a gay Indian immigrant. So it's a very different type of place than I think many Irish Americans assume it is. So part of my job over seven years was to bring in artists who could foster different types of dialogue and conversation, which was wonderful. Yeah, it was a really nice way. Yeah. What was your what was your college experience after after dance stuff? Um, so I I had a great college experience. I got to do my undergraduate um, at Trinity College in Dublin. Um, which is, uh, it, has an, it has an incredible library, <laughs> which I, I took for granted because it was my undergraduate. I think when you do your undergraduate, you imagine that every other university is going to be exactly the same. Right. Um, and then I, then I did a master's in uh, theater and drama studies at uh, University College Cork. Um, and then I did my PhD in dance studies. And then I went back because uh, I because I had worked at the Library of Congress, <laughs> I had worked at the Library of Congress as the dance specialist there, and archival practice doesn't always seem intuitive. Um, so there were a lot of practices that I was undertaking at the Library of Congress that didn't seem to make logical sense to me. So I was doing things a certain way without understanding why, um, and I really wanted to understand why do we take certain steps. Why do we organize materials in certain ways? Um, so I went back then and I did um, an MLS, which is a master's in library science, and I took an archival track. So in a, in a way, I was sort of secretly preparing for the job I have without ever wow. thinking I was going to get it. Um, and I should say, actually, my very, very first trip to America was to the Jerome Robbins Dance Division. Um, the, wow. the Irish government uh, used to have a program called the Art Flight, um, so any Irish citizen could write in once a year and ask for a plane ticket to go somewhere for a cultural purpose. So you didn't have to be a professional artist. You could be somebody who, you could be a farmer who wanted to go see an opera. Um, and you could write in and say, I'd love to go see, you know, Aida at La Scala. And, and if Aer Lingus, who was our national airline, um, flew there, they would send you a plane ticket. And I was, <laughs> I was... <laughs> That is different places, different places. Definitely not here in the good U.S. of No, a. I know. Oh my god! I'd Wait, like okay. to. I'd like to go see something in Australia. Can I go? So, so I, I wrote my letter in. I'm my lovely librarian in uh, Dublin, my public librarian, and I were trying to track down all of the different versions of the Rite of Spring that existed. Because at the mm. time, I was kind of obsessed as to why people were drawn to that particular piece of music. Was it about the myth of Nijinsky? Was it about the music itself? Like, and how were they interpreting it? And in, and in Irish archives, there was very little to go on. And my librarian tracked down all of these files. And she was like, well, everything just seems to be in this place in New York. So you should go there. <laughs> so I, I, wrote, I wrote my letter in as a teenager. Um, like I, How old were you? I was 19 then. And I, wow. um, so I wrote, my, I wrote my letter. And a month later, I was in New York. And I went to... Where did you stay? I stayed. I keep trying to remember. I re I had the rough guide to New York 
And the way, uh-huh. <laughs> and they had. I remember that. Yeah, and they had recommend the rough guides. By the way, got me through many cities in my youth. I had the rough guide <laughs> to Saint Petersburg. I had the rough guide to Moscow. I had the rough guide to Paris. I had the rough guide. The rough guide to Helsinki. I had the rough guide to everywhere. Um, spy, spy, <laughs> spy. Because yeah, spies, so spies spy. always have the rough guide. Um, <laughs> well, seriously, I'd be like, I can just look at this and I'll figure out the rest. It's fine. I'll, I'll just grab this cheap thing. It's called rough guide. I'm going to figure out everything else because. I speak every language of every place I'm going anyway. I'm going to ask people. <laughs> so, so I stayed in some, I stayed in, a, it was a really, it was a fine hotel. I remember picking it because they said that they uh, hung artwork of independent artists in the lobby. Like there were local artists from, it was somewhere downtown and they were doing some sort of collaboration with young artists. So I stayed there. And the only thing I really remember was the first time I had encountered like a steam radiator and the the steam coming off it and the noise all night long was very confusing to me. Um, that, I wonder if it was the chain. It might have been. I can I can never remember, and I wish I could. Were you on the west side? Do you remember? Oh, I had no idea what side I was on all at right, that time. Right, it was right, just, it was right. just like sprawling mass. Uh, <laughs> Linda, I just love the idea too of somehow passing you in downtown New York, and like, <laughs> or are you being like, oh, I think I'm gonna go to this place where people can smoke inside, and you go to Cafe Jaten, and I'm there, you know, having a coffee, and I was like, look at that beautiful woman. I wish I looked like that. Oh, yeah. No. <laughs> that would go through my mind, exactly. Um, anyhow, so you came, and, and that was at Jerome Romans. But I have a question about that you did. You did your master's in theater. Master's studies. in theater and drama studies, because at the time, the only master's in Ireland that was available in dance was a master's in Irish dance at University of Limerick. So I, I, I so I did the master's in drama and theater studies, but I did my uh, dissertation on dance. And then, um, the- how did that work? I'm so were you reading and, and I'm also curious, who were you interested in during your masters? So I really went on a, I mean, my, so my undergraduate was in, uh, French and Russian. And for my final dissertation in Russian, I wrote about the ballet Russe. And that's, mm. that's when I realized that nobody had written about Nijinska. Everybody was writing about the mm. four men who choreographed for Diaghilev, but nobody had written about her. And so then for my master's, I kind of delved into the two ballets of hers that are most frequently seen in rep, which is Les Nos, which I still hold to be sort of the one feminist masterpiece that exists in the balletic canon, um, and Les Biches, which is also another feminist bisexual, you know, LGBTQ, it's yeah. a, it's a gender bending ballet. Um, yeah. per, perhaps the first appearance, obvious appearance of a lesbian couple on the ballet stage in 1924. Right. Um, <laughs> and for our listeners, that means the deer. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just in case, just in case they're like, whoa, wow, that she really was ahead of her time. That's very like punk nineties, you know, queer indie, but no queens. It means the deer. Anyhow, yeah, yes. but she, and that ballet is so, inc- when is, it's from, I would it's, love. That's from 1924. And there's, there's, a, right. so there's the figure of La Garçon, which is in, in the French language already tells you it's an androgynous figure because Garçon son means boy but it's a feminized la. It's, it's la, la, and yeah. then there's an extra ne on the end which feminizes mm-hmm. the noun um you have the gray girls which is commonly known as the sapphic couple um and then nizhinska herself played the hostess 
And uh, apparently she used to drink a glass of champagne before she would go out. And she, she had a cigarette holder and she had a lit cigarette when she danced. And I remember reading a review. <laughs> this is my dream. It's like, I, feel, I also feel I've done this piece in a way at La Mama, just different. Well, so Nijinska could apparently jump almost as high as her brother. So they had a wow. they had a special series of toe exercises that they used to do, which they they believed was the the secret to their jumping technique. So apparently she could almost match him in elevation. And there's a French review from when the ballet debuted, which said that basically she disappeared out of view, and you could just see the arc of the cigarette smoke that showed you where she had been on stage. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love I mean, it. That's my absolute dream. When we come back to live performance, I think they should legalize smoking in theaters, and I, 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 I bet it has to happen. Did you just be like Sarah? Sarah Mearns calling Sarah Mearns to the stage. We have a role for you, um, and uh, and Reed and I can play the the sapphic women. Oh, I'll be uh, great. <laughs> the great girls, yeah. And I'll be like girls. our mom. <laughs> that's, that's right. Because she got the Love it. she got the best outfit. She got like the crushed blue velvet short shorts with the little like jacket that went with it. She, I mean, that was the outfit. Well, and didn't I feel like? A, am I wrong that I've? I thought I saw a photo from Paris Opera of a restaging maybe about a decade ago. Yeah. So Frederick Ashton is the reason we still have any of Nijinska's work and rep. So she had, um, she actually moved out to the West Coast in the 30s um, and worked with Max Reinhardt on his Midsummer Night's Dream, which you can still see. Um, that's, I just also love that she moved to the West Coast. She was yeah. like, San Francisco. <laughs> Uh-huh. And train Linda, yeah, who was the original designer of Le Biche? Oh, okay. So you had uh it was Marie Laurenson, uh she the uh female French painter. Nijinska did much better with uh female artists than male artists. She did mm. beautiful backdrops and gorgeous costumes. Um mm. she could hung out with um a lot of the French intellectuals at the time, um, like Apollinaire, people like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Mary Lawrence on this, the designer. And Poulenc was okay, I'll, I'll yeah. look into that. Yeah. Her artwork is gorgeous. Really I'm taking beautiful. notes. Okay. Is taking there, notes. is there, Reed and I just before this, we, we, we spoke before speaking with you and we're talking about a kind of, um, we're talking, we were talking a little bit about the fatigue around doing the podcast and also partly that we're not seeing anything, mm-hmm. that we're also not feeling drawn toward to watching work right now. Yeah. And that, um, also there was so much of, of having also felt inundated in doing that. And mm-hmm. I felt very, I mean, a lot of my, when I first moved to New York at 18 through like my early twenties, I was actually in the library a lot watching work, specifically all the things that Graham has that you can only see there. Mm-hmm. But now I'm curious how, if I wanted to watch Le Biche, is there, is there anything online that could, that would allow me to watch? Is that on YouTube? Is the entirety of it on YouTube? I don't know if it's and, on YouTube, but there's productions out there. I, I will look afterwards for you and I will send you links. Great. Yeah. I mean, I know we have that it in the fun. library, but. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. But that's, but that, you know, it's going to be a moment before I can get there. <laughs> and I want to get to actually what the library is doing at, and in this, in this time of um, the virus, as Reed calls it. <laughs> um, so, uh, 
Okay, so for your masters, you focused on Labiche. I did Labiche and Lenas, and then and Lenas, yeah, and right. then I did my PhD on her as well. So then I kind of delved further into her canon and went to ballets of hers that are now lost. So her um, her futurist Romeo and Juliet, where Romeo and Juliet turn into an airplane at the end and fly away. What? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when did she make that? 1926. And actually, she she uh, Balanchine was her assistant on that ballet. <gasps> yeah. Wow. And this was with the, to the Prokofiev music. No, um, she had uh, the English composer Constant Lambert. Uh, Diaghilev commissioned him, and she did not get on well with him, but. I mean, she often did not get well on what what people what, turn. What year was the Prokofiev score from? That came later. Uh, that was yeah. in the Soviet era. Yeah, yeah. Poor and Prokofiev. who was the first to choreograph that? Oh, gosh. That's this isn't a, a test, question. Linda. I no, just, no. This is so cruel, Reed. This is not like I love that. It's like you know, what, you know who is dance history? Linda Murray. Truly. She's not. She's an incredible spy because she's also can remember literally everything about things that very few people know about. Oh no, there are lots. Yeah. Of, there are lots of people who know a lot about dance history. Um, and and they are wonderful. I am I am the facilitator of the information for the people who know a lot about dance history. She's the so. gatekeeper, <laughs> <laughs> the gatekeeper, but also all you know our favorite when it oh. comes to dance history for sure. Yeah. Um, well, because Linda, you don't seem to have an agenda with your knowledge of dance history. You seem very. Yes. Um, you're willing to share all of it without a kind of without trying to influence. And I do think that's something that is really important for uh, to, to go off of that, is that your knowledge, indeed, your knowledge of the history, your, ex, your extreme um, breadth, and, and I was talking about this earlier with Reed, about his, his very large breadth of knowledge, but with also a real rigor behind each segment of it. You aren't pushing forward um, ideas uh, that are... That I would that are, I'd say are more frequently get pushed forward that function along terms of the patriarchy, of a very specific and perhaps that's how it perhaps that's how it view goes forward in terms of um, ideas of beauty or gender coding right. or these things that I think can be can be more frequent frequently with dance historians. Right. Of that, if it's not where they go to that thing, if it's as Balanchine said, it's a beautiful flower, and that's it. Yeah, and that was sort of what my question, actually, or where I was aiming for, in that you also had this theater mm-hmm. masters, mm-hmm. which is going to expose you to also these uh, concepts of um, outside of story ballet, but an act, some a performance being done for or some sort of efficacy, some sort of reason. Mm-hmm. Like I was curious if you got into Beckett or well, I'm Irish. You know, <laughs> I mean, I was I was going to just I I've been really thinking a lot about Beckett recently. I can't so imagine kind of why. Like, I know it's a real. Well, it's, I'm kind of like jockeying between Beckett and Camus. It feels <laughs> like really in between in between those. So out of Sartre, of course. Oh. Um, by the way, if you want to laugh, you should watch a tiny little Irish film, which is available on YouTube called Beckett and Joyce Play Pitch and Push, which is, it's um, Samuel Beckett and James Joyce playing a game of crazy golf. Um, and it's, it, it's like four minutes long. It's, is it real? 
What do you mean? Is it real? No, no. Is it? No. I really. No. Well, no. But I thought that maybe it was like an old video that got uploaded onto onto YouTube. That was Beckett and Joyce, like playing a like a ball game and being like, "I will." You know, I can't do an Irish accent. That's when I was in acting. When I was in acting school, I was absolutely. I remember they were like, "And now you'll do a Cork accent," and I was like, "Mm -mm, "It'll be British posh." as good as I can do. Sorry. If British posh is always a good one to go to. This is when I was going in for like, you know, when I was still really an actor, we're going for, I remember going in for like the cripple of Inishman, you know, at, <laughs> the, at the public. And I was like, I'm not going to get it because I cannot do that. Nobody, but, nobody um, <laughs> can do those accents. Well, cause they speak Irish on those, those um, islands anyway. So the, the accent of Martin McDonough's plays is an accent of the imagination. Um, cause I, uh, I used to spend, that's interesting. yeah, cause, uh, so Inishman, so, uh, Inishmore, Inishman and Inishir are the three Aran Islands. And I used to spend my summers on Inishmore cause a common thing they do when you're a kid in Ireland is they send you to an Irish speaking part of the country for the summer. So I used to live on the last house on the Island when I was a kid, um, and just speak Irish all summer long. So yeah, like the I know the accent, but the accent really only makes sense in the Irish language. So once you move it into the English language, it sort of morphs into this other thing. Mm. And McDonough grew up in England. His parents were from Connemara, but um, he grew up in London. So it's a, oh. it's it's sort of like Playboy of the Western World. It's this sort of fantasized, imaginary version of Ireland so you shouldn't feel bad your accent would have been just fine whatever it was thank you thank you well I quite I'm and quite frankly I'm not a I'm not really a fan of Martin McDonough I have to say but um and I and that makes sense actually because yeah. it always felt a little it felt uh uh, this view of you know the the local yokels mm-hmm. in this way where they're hyper violent and he's done this sort of Tarantino esque view of their farm life which I always found sort of um, what's the word salacious <laughs> um, uh, so so you do the but, wait so where in, are we we're inside of the theater training I, I'm working away from this masters because I'm very okay. curious about how inside of a theater masters you were able to say to for you know in terms of that oh I'm going to do my thesis on this how did how did that work well I was I was really lucky that the department was incredibly um, inclusive and open to ideas about whatever we wanted to write about or think about um, my supervisors were Mary Noonan who was also in the French department and um, she, like me, had an interest in feminist critical theory, so she was really interested in that lens being applied. And then uh, Jules Gilson Ellis, who is a performance artist in the UK, she was on the faculty at the time as well, um, and she was my other supervisor. And so I think because she was in the realm of performance art, she was it was a hop, skip, and a jump for her to dance. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So, so, and then in during that, were you, what year, do you mind if I ask what year? No, not at all. Masters was? Uh, that master's was 2001, 2002 around then. Yeah. Yeah. So then I'm also curious inside of that, if they were bringing up people like Karen Finley or Julie Tolentino or, um, uh, Carolee Schneeman. And, oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I mean, I, I mean, Carolee Schneeman, I feel is the closest sort of crossover with, with dance and performance art, maybe in that, in that yeah. way. I, and then also people who are really prominent in, um, in, in Europe, like Rosemary Butcher in the UK. Right. Um, right. And all that work she did. And then, <laughs> 
um, Marina Abramovich, ha um, her students did a residency at the Irish Museum of Modern Art while I was doing my master's and um, we had to participate. <laughs> and you had to participate no, no, which were no, well, you no, we were we were participating more in sort of um a critical context but the, the oh. thing I, the, I was, the, you were like i laid naked under a skeleton no but the thing breathing okay so the thing the thing <laughs> i remember about that is my lovely lovely dad who doesn't really you know he doesn't really under understand or get my particular obsession or love of the arts particularly the more abstract or um postmodern but is always so supportive of everything that I do. My car broke down at the museum and I had to call him uh, to give me a lift back. And I kept saying to him, don't, don't come into the museum. <laughs> I said, I'll meet you in the carport. Don't come into the museum. And of course he came into the museum and I was at one end of the hallway and I turn and I look and my dad had walked in and like walked straight into a woman standing on a pedestal holding her left breast in her hand and yo <laughs> and she was yodeling. <laughs> and then there was a German performance artist who had a who had a fruit cake on top of a little motorized car and at intervals he would explode the cake and of course he drove it right up to my poor father feet and exploded the cake in his face and at that point it's a great show that is a great show Who's, who was that a great show. what artist was that i need to remember but at that point i just like ran That's toward really him good. and like dragged him out and of course he was on a rant about taxpayers money and i was like yeah yeah, yeah it's fine well and that and that because that is something inside of your your biography that i find that really makes sense because i find you to be someone who in my conversations with you which remi which reminds me actually of Reed in a lot of ways, where you were able to speak so cogently through the history of ballet and then things and and then things that we would view more of a performance art that comes out of Viennese actionism, et cetera. Yeah. And that that has a love of the of the idea of labor as well as spectacle, feminist theory and queer theory. Um, and so that's interesting. That makes sense to me. Well, I was also curious about at what point you started accumulating knowledge about the entirety of the New York dance universe, because I remember being in your office one of the first times and you have that wipe off board with all the names of the people who you're acquiring mm -hmm. work from or who you'd like to acquire work from. And, and you were asking me, like, are there any names that you don't see on this board that you think would be valuable? And it was incredible to me that you knew who all these people were. There was such like a big variety of dance makers. And did that only start four years ago when you when you moved to New York that you started really knowing these people? Uh, no, I, I mean, I think the thing about New York is it's obviously a global capital of dance. So we... Those of us who are not from America grow up knowing a lot of the names of dance makers. Um, and in particular, the, the Judson choreographers, um, they were brought over to Dublin um, by a man called John Scott with great frequency. Uh, which John, John Scott is sort of the father of postmodern dance. Um, his, own, his own work varies. Um, he, he sometimes is capable of really good work, but the wonderful thing that he did was he sort of brave, bravely just kept forging this path for postmodernism in a, 
in a patron base that didn't really understand the vocabulary because we weren't building upon the things that postmodernism reacting against. Like we didn't have that same culture of classicism and then modernism and then postmodernism. So like postmodernism just got dropped in and you were dealing with an audience who was very sophisticated in um, theatrical language, but didn't have the same basis for dance. Um, so it was hard for him to sustain that work over a long period of time, but he brought in people with great regularity like Meredith Monk. So I got to see a lot of that work um, in Europe. And then obviously living in Paris, I got to see work. They love people like Trisha Brown there and Lucinda Childs. And, um, but I, did, I definitely did know the European scene better than I knew the New York scene. And the important thing with the dance division as well is not just abstractly knowing who people are, but... It's you have to really get to know the community intimately. You have to see their work in person and you have to get to know them and understand why they make the work and how they make the work and what's important to them about the legacy of that work, or you can't you can't protect them long term. So that's that's the work of the last four years and it continues. I mean, that's why I you know, outside of this time period, I'm usually out in the theater pretty much every night of the week because um, it's it's really important to see what the artists are doing and what they have to say. To backtrack, when you you did the master's, then you did your PhD, and then and your PhD mm-hmm. was where? That was so it started in University of Surrey, and then my supervisor, the lovely Gian Andrea Poesio, who was uh, this wonderful Italian dance scholar who died uh, young a couple of years ago, uh, he transferred to London Metropolitan, um, and I either had to switch supervisors and stay at Surrey or move with him, and I loved him so much, so I moved with him. Uh, so I finished out of London Met. Yeah. And then you, and then where did you do your library? That was that was here in the U.S. Yeah. and okay. I did that. Yeah, and I did that at Clarion. So, yeah. what brought you to the states? How did that? How did that happen? Nijinska did because uh, her collection is at the Library of Congress. So I came over to research right. with that collection, and they hadn't processed it at the time, but they were really sweet and they let me access the boxes. So I was pulling out stuff for them, saying, "Oh, by the way, this is like a Stravinsky letter. So you might want to do something with that." Right. <laughs> And they, so then it, you know, I was chatting with them and um, they realized that I spoke uh, the right languages to be able to go through the material because, uh, you know, Nijinska, her parents were Polish. She, she spent time in Poland. Obviously, she was a Russian speaker. And then a lot of uh, the Ballet Russe uh, work happened in Paris. So you sort of needed those languages to filter your way through the collection. So then they oh, asked me. speak Polish? Because as part of my Russian degree, I took a minor in Polish. <laughs> Linda, Linda, you are absolutely like a spy. Who and who I wish 100%. I was. Like who I who I wish I was. Like my no, like a role model. Like, no, 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 no. I really do. You're such a role model for me. I am so. I am like. I like pulled. I like pulled up Duolingo a couple of times and I'm like, no, I can't. When I was when I was in Brazil, and I would speak to the because you have to speak Portuguese, and I would speak to people, they would be like, "Are you from France?" Because every time I try another language, it just sounds like I have a French accent. It's I'm terrible at it. You're so incredible. Anyhow, so 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 you're in the Library of Congress, and you're like, "Oh, by the way, there's this and that," and they're like, "Oh, wow, someone who actually is really capable." 
taxes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we should hire her. We should. <laughs> and who cares? Oh, wow. This person's like capable and she cares. We should hire her. So they, they asked me if I would uh, come and do that collection. Mm-hmm. So I got to work on, I got to work mm-hmm. on the, I got to work on the Nishinska collection and I got to work on Graham material and I got to work on Catherine Dunham material. So what? that was. And, and how did the Graham material happen? Uh, so they, so the Library of Congress has a portion of the Graham archive, particularly they have uh, some of her personal uh, letters. Um, right. So I remember the first, I remember the first time I was reading Martha Graham's letters to Eric Hawkins when they were getting divorced and like the sweat was running down my back. I felt like I was Eric Hawkins and I was being attacked. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember, do you remember any of it? Oh God. It's it it was just pure fire and brimstone. It was so angry. I I don't have any phrases in my brain about Mm -hmm. it, but it, yeah, I just remember the rage was like palpable off the page. It was so angry. Yeah, yeah, I can I can imagine. What yeah. was her handwriting like? Uh her handwriting was a little um it's a little scribbly. We have we have letters belong to her as well in the dance division. Uh obviously she was great friends with Agnes DeMille, so there's um lovely well, letters back back well, yeah. Kind but, of friends. But like the, kind of like or, original frenemies. <laughs> I was gonna say frenemies, yeah. but they're but right. their letters to each other are yes. Because it's almost like a performance. It's like they, it's because they, it's almost like they, there are some archives where you sort of feel that the person you, okay, I'm important enough that obviously someday this letter is going to be read by other people and you feel the performance and the letter of, you know, oh, my darling, you're so wonderful. And, And then there's other letters that are clearly not meant for anybody but the the person reading it as in the case of Martha and Eric or the other letter I remember that really hit me um so there's often material in the archives that are closed for a period of time because they're sensitive in nature and um something I you routinely do as the curator is you sort of check you check for things that are past the point where they need to remain closed and you can open them up. And so there were these letters between Asamu Noguchi and Ruth Page that had been closed since they were acquired by the first curator, Gigi Oswald, and they were allowed to be opened up. So I went and retrieved them and I said, okay, I better read them before I open them up and just make sure. So Ruth Page, who ran a a major ballet company in Chicago, um, she's one of those unforgotten figures in the history of American dance, but she was... um, She's pretty amazing, and she had uh, she had a lot of influential work. She did a lot of work with Noguchi, but they had had an affair while she was married, and these were the love letters that had passed between them. And right. they're they're beautiful, and they're working on uh, her piece, expanding this universe at the same time. And he's drawing her like little sketches in the margins of the fabric, and you know, little peeking her eyes are peeking out over the fabric and things like that. But there's the there's the letter he writes her after her husband visits him. Like so the husband has found out. And the, you're reading the letter and you just get immersed into a soap opera. You just like, wow. like you're, I, I felt my blood pressure start to rise and I was like starting to get really nervous for them. You almost feel like you're complicit in it, what what's going on. And it's um yeah, it, it's kind of incredible when you interact with material like that. And so it's, these letters had been acquired from Noguchi, but he said, please keep them secret until I'm dead. From, 
from Ruth Page. So she gave her whole collection to the dance division and she really wanted that relationship to be enshrined long term. But mm -hmm. as long as she and her husband and Noguchi were all alive, she didn't want anybody to be hurt by those letters. So mm -hmm. they, they were closed to a point in time where she was confident all three of them would be dead. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when we were going through the AIDS World History Project, Clark Tippett says, you know, will you, but you're not going to put this out until after I've died, right? Right. I mean, he, right. because he's really saying everything. Yeah. And, but, and he wants it to be on record, just he doesn't want to be around for the backlash when it's out. Yeah. Um, which makes sense. When you were, so, so you're at the Library of Congress, you're working on these, uh, through these different, through these people's works. And then mm -hmm. what happens? What starts well, to bring you up, up here? Uh, well, so then I, then I went to running the arts organization. Uh, so the, the, right. my, my friend, uh, Owen Feeney was cultural attache at the Irish embassy at the time. And so he convinced me that I should run the arts organization instead. Uh, so I did that for seven years and I, I should say the curator position at the dance division, um, so we're in our 76th year and I'm only the fifth curator. So it's not a job that opens up very often, um, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, because it's a, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's the most humbling thing to do to take care of those stories. Um, mm. It's an, it's an incredible gift. It's a huge honor. And once you have that job, you understand that it's a vocation and very few people leave it quickly. Um, also because the nature of archives is that it takes a really long time for you to see the outcome of the work that you're doing. So you kind of get yourself to get yourself involved in these projects that are going to have to span multiple years. And it's really hard to sort of walk away when you're in the middle of something. But uh, yeah, I, I was, I was sitting with a friend in DC who was also a librarian and she was annoyed with her job. And so she was job surfing and she was, she was a children's librarian and uh, she was looking at the New York public library job postings. And she was like, <laughs> she was like, she was like, you'd be great in New York. You should get go get a job in New York. Why don't you work at the New York public library? And I was like, there is only one job at the New York public library I would want. And it is never, ever available. And she was like, what's that? And I was like, dance curator. She's like, no, no, they're looking for somebody right now. I, wow. Yeah, I know. I wouldn't have, it was, I, it was sort of like a universe moment because I, I, I would never have gone looking for it because I never would have expected it to be there. And then the entire way through the process, like they interviewed, I had, I think I had like seven interviews total for the job, including, wow. including one on a Saturday night at 10.30 p.m. by phone because that was the only time that the Mellon director at the time was available. So I remember sitting on my back step with my dog having this really surreal phone interview um, on a Saturday night. Uh, but every step I went through, I kept saying, oh, it's really nice that they're kind of humoring me, but I'm not going to get this job. Like every, mm. everybody wants this job. I'm not going to get this job. And then I'd make it to the next round and I'd sort of go, okay, well, you made it to the next round. So, you know, you, you, you've done respectably, but you're not going to get this job. And 
I, I still keep waiting for somebody to be like, there's been a terrible, terrible mistake. <laughs> I literally cannot picture anyone else no. in the job. You are, I cannot picture anyone else. Wow, what a turnaround, listeners. This episode began with Reed and I wondering, what's the point? And then fully inspired by the icon Linda Murray, we recorded a really long episode. So this is going to be a two-parter. Please tune in next week as we continue to dialogue and do an oral history with our inspiration, Linda Murray.